Welcome to FACL, Ontario's podcast. FACL is a coalition of Asian-Canadian legal professionals working to promote equity, justice, and opportunity for Asian-Canadian legal professionals and a wider community. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hi, listeners. This is Michelle Cito and Andrea Lee, your co-hosts for the FACL Ontario podcast series. Today, we have two special guests joining us in our conversation about identity and race. We have Jennifer King, an environment law partner practicing at a Bay Street law firm, and Faye Faraday, a preeminent social justice lawyer, policy consultant, and academic. Welcome to our show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks very much. So just last week, the Democratic Party elected Kamala Harris as the vice president nominee. Kamala is the daughter of immigrants. Her mother is from India and her father is from Jamaica. She is the first black woman in Asian American on a major presidential ticket in the US. And the world seems fixated on her mixed race identity. She has been described as black and South Asian, black and Indian American, Indian Jamaican, African American, and the list goes on. As a woman with a mixed race background, how do you identify yourself to others when it comes to your race or ethnicity? Faye, why don't we start with you first? I think I identify myself differently depending on the situations that I'm in. I don't ever identify myself as mixed race, I don't think. I identify myself as, most frequently I identify myself as Filipina. In other contexts, identify myself as Armenian, but I have, or I identify myself as racialized, as a woman of color. And I don't think of myself as being biracial because that suggests that there's some sort of percentage of, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And that whole discourse of blood quantum is completely toxic, as we know. But I also think that having grown up entirely immersed in two immigrant uh, communities, and both of my parents are immigrants, I'm 100% Filipina, I'm 100% Armenian, and there is no division inside of me about those things. I work most frequently with the Filipino community. I grew up in a large Filipino community, and so that is how I usually identify myself. But I also grew up speaking and reading and writing Armenian and, you know, and dancing in a Filipino dance group. So there's no, for me, it's all there. Jen, how about you? So I find it very interesting to hear how Faye talks about how she identifies. Uh, similarly, it depends on the context, and it's actually really changed as I've grown up. So when I was a kid, I identified as half Filipina and didn't even have to mention that I was half white. That was maybe assumed, but but I really, that that's how I would talk about it. Um, and then as I got older, when I hit university, um, people started telling me how I should identify because to them, I appeared white or Indigenous. Those were the two things that I got. And people would always act surprised to hear that I was Asian. And so I got a lot of people, both my Asian friends and my white friends would tell me, 
tell me how I should be able to identify. So they told me at the time in the late 1990s, uh, the word that we used was minority. And so people would tell me, you shouldn't identify as a minority because you have all the privilege of a, of a white person because you look white to us. And so starting really young, I started feeling kind of disentitled to my Asian heritage. And I fought it. It's, very, it's always been very important to me, but I'm also very, very aware of my privilege in many ways. And so I've tried very hard not to lean on it. And I, I think it, it's indicative of this is, is that I didn't join FACL until 2018. I went and I checked. <laughs> it took me a long time to join FACL and it took younger lawyers asking me to, to come and, and maybe mentor uh, because there aren't that many Asian or Filipina lawyers or partners downtown in private practice. I don't know what the numbers are, but I don't see many. And so, you know, it's really changed as I've, as I've grown up. I probably, I've never really identified as a person of color. And that's a word that I've, a phrase I've been hearing more in the last decade, but I've always identified as Filipina. And, and I think I, for a while I was using biracial, but the more I think about it, I'm not biracial. My Lola, my, my grandmother in the Philippines was half, was half Chinese. My Lolo, my grandfather was half Spanish. So what does biracial mean? I'm, I'm multiracial. So um, it's really changed. And, and what's nice is that more recently, you know, there's all the different boxes and sometimes there's no box for me. There's just no choice. There's, there was a period of time, maybe 10 years where there was never a box for me to check off. But now more recently there's other, or there's mixed, or there's, there's other things, or you can check multiple boxes. You know, that's really funny that you say that, Jen, because I, I mean, I grew up checking the other box all the time (laughs) because I think when I was growing up in the, 70s you had the option of like English or French right Right. (laughs) I I don't even remember but none of them were remotely related to who I am so I was always the other box and my kids uh, have the same problem now they have you know all the different uh, check boxes and my youngest son had to fill one out at one point and took it to his teacher and said I literally don't know how to fill this out. Like, how many am I allowed to tick? And, but you know, what you said as well about other people identifying you is such a real thing. And it's, it's been a problem for me my entire life. When I was growing up within the Armenian community, I was considered too dark and too Asian looking. So I couldn't possibly be Armenian. And in, the Filipino community, I was considered suspect because I'm relatively pale for uh, a Filipino person. The rest of my family is much darker than me. And so there was a taint of uh, colorism, right? And the way that paler skin is privileged as a signal of class. Yes. And so there were tensions around that when I was growing up. But certainly... Up until, I'd say, the last five years, there's been no doubt that people who are not me perceive me as being racialized. And certainly whenever I've crossed any border on the planet, I'm one of those people who gets the special brown person security scrutiny all the time. But in the last couple of years, I've had white people tell me, 
there's no way you're Filipino. There's no way you're Asian. And I think you think that why? Like on what basis do you get to decide? Because you've now seen a broader range of colors. I just find it so poisonous that someone else thinks that they get to decide who I am and what my identity is. Right. But, you know, at the same time, my kids who have grown up in a very deliberately multicultural neighborhood, a very mixed race neighborhood, their friends would identify me as a person of color who can sometimes be white coated. And so they have a much more sophisticated, nuanced analysis of class and the of race and the politics of race. Um, certainly, much more so than people of my generation. I'm uh, in my early fifties, but I have never thought of myself as white. When people say that I can pass as white, I look at them and I say, what kind of white do you think I am? Because there is nothing (laughs) about long jet black hair and brown skin that says white to me. So I've always been aware that it's entirely other people's baggage that I'm dealing with and that people are really desiring certainty and binary answers. Mm -hmm. You're either Mm -hmm. this or that. The idea that you live in the in-between spaces of these artificial categories unsettles Mm -hmm. a lot of people. And I think that as a society, we're not even getting to that point. We're still locked into very rigid conversations about race. Mm -hmm. That leads me to... um you know, my next question, Faye and Jennifer. So you you talked a little bit about growing up. Have you noticed any change in the way people are approaching you and the next generation, your children, with this discussion over the years? I think, Faye, you were saying, you know, in the 70s, it was really, really binary. Uh, And perhaps now with there being more mixed race families, do you notice any change in the way people are approaching the subject and changes in the experience that your children are having? Maybe we'll start with you, Jen. Okay. So I think it's changed over time what I've, I've noticed, but it also depends on location still. So when I was a kid, if I was with my parents in small town, rural BC, we would get looks it was still not really acceptable to be mixed race a couple. And, and when I was in the small town with my parents and it was obvious that we were mixed kids, I felt noticed and it wasn't positive. I can't quite put my finger on it because it was a long time ago, but in the early 80s and the 80s. And in school, I was one of a handful of mixed background people in a Catholic school in BC. And so I, I you know, I didn't quite fit in with uh, the Filipinos. There was a lot of Filipinos in my school. And, and the people that I hung out with were, there was, my best friends were um, uh, Black and mixed Korean Mexican. And it's interesting how we kind of found each other and, and, and spent time with each other. But we were very much defined by being mixed. And it was very obvious. Everybody knew. It was, you know, they always got us to speak at the uh, Canada Day celebrations about multiculturalism. 
<laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and, you know, I went to church and I went to the, I, I did Filipino dance and wore the traditional clothes and, and very much was identified as Filipina. Now, mixed and in the culture when I would go back home to the Philippines with my mother, it always bothered me a bit that there was some pride in the fact that of my four sisters, a couple of us were whiter skinned. And that was kind of, it was the skin color. It was not the other features. It wasn't the hair, the eyes or the nose or whatever you else, however else you identify as, as being Filipina. It was how white the skin was. And we got comments about how beautiful we were because we had whiter skin. And I even just recently, somebody came to do some landscaping on the house and he was Filipino and I was chatting with him and speaking a little bit of Tagalog. And he, he asked me, oh, do you know, you, did you have a Filipino nanny? I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm Filipino. I'm hollow, hollow. I like to, I like to say, uh, which is a, it's a drink in the Philippines, but it's basically means mix, mix. And people think that's funny. And as soon as he found out that I was half he talked about how beautiful he thought I was and so you know growing up that was what the tension was is that when I went to the Philippines when I was with the Filipino community um, they absolutely identified me as Filipino but it was look how lucky you are that you're whiter or my little sister always got you should be a movie star in the Philippines because she was whiter and that made me uncomfortable I didn't like that beauty was assigned like by skin color and then as I as I got older when I was by myself, I do kind of, to most people, kind of pass or or really people would assume I was Indigenous as was the most way that I got identified. And then as I got older, I, like I said, when I hit university, I really started feeling like it was only then that people started telling me that I couldn't identify with my Asian side, that somehow I was less entitled to it. And interestingly, I started dating a guy who was half Tamil, half Irish, and his skin color was darker than mine. He was just the, like he was the same percentage mixes, if you want to say, as me. But he felt, and people seemed to entitle him more, like give him more entitlement to his culture, to his background, um, and and it really bothered me. It, it really did bother me. But again, like I said earlier, I was aware of my privilege. I was aware of of the advantages of having a white dad and going golfing with him when I was a kid. And so I, like my whole life until I got into my late thirties, I really struggled. I really struggled with it. But I, you know, as fame could tell you, uh, I don't even know when this was, but maybe it was a decade ago. I, I reached out to Faye and asked if we could meet, and we met at a coffee shop on, uh, I think was it Bathurst or anyway. We, it we was met at, a, it was at my office. Was at, it at your office? <laughs> yeah, at the Center for Social Innovation. That's right. And so we, you know, we met and I identified with her. And so, and, and as I was going through my law career and, and seeing how I was identified, what I find fascinating and what I think we'll talk about is how I'm about a decade younger than Faye and how the experience for me was different. And when I was in law school, there was one other Filipino in my law class and we found each other immediately <laughs> and are still friends and identify each other as the only Filipinos. And we ended up articling at the same place but people didn't see me that way but that's only in Toronto if I go outside of Toronto if I travel um, if I travel you know if I go to Turkey if I've been any other place in the world they absolutely see me as somebody who is likely mixed background there's there's no question it's really only in North America and big cities that I get the you know you're you're white passing you look white to me everywhere else in the world they can see that I'm and, and I think it's like a belonging, 
Like they see me and they're like, you're partly, I even go up, I work in Nunavut. And when I go to Nunavut, they also recognize me. So I find it interesting. It's Toronto. There's been, a, it's here that I get mo- the most um, insistence that you, you know, you're white. I get the same thing as Faye. You, you're not Asian. There, there's no way you can be Asian. Yeah. And yet Jen and I look very different. And, <laughs> you know, like I said, I mean, this is, a podcast so you can't see me but I've got long jet black hair I've got the stereotypical Filipino nose there is nothing about my features that is white and yet people project um you know it was very different when I was growing up and I think at the time there was such a pressure to assimilate to pass as white my parents are as I said both immigrants they met in the United States during segregation when they were working at hospitals for people who were black or people who were Jewish which were the only places they could work they came to Canada and I was born in Canada because of the race laws in the states because my parents were not allowed to marry in the state because they were coded differently according to race. So that identity um, steeped in race and migration is absolutely central to how I understand myself. It's my origin story. And I grew up with uh, parents for whom English was the last of the languages they learned. When my kids were born, I remember a day where I was like, they were tiny and I was playing with them and, you know, saying the, the little sweet things that you do to children. And my partner stopped and said, what language are you speaking? And I said, what do you mean? I was speaking English. And he said, no, you were absolutely not speaking English. What language is that? And I realized that my and all the vocabulary for preschool is not English, but it's a mishmash of Tagalog, of Pampanga, of Armenian, of Persian. Like it's just all scrambled up together. And when I went into the school system, that's really when I learned to speak English properly. Like I went into the school system speaking very broken accented English because I grew up with people for whom this was, you know, the last of a long list of languages for them. So even though I was born in Canada, I don't feel like this is home. This is, I have grown up with an understanding of Canadian society being other and something that I've had to consciously actively learned to engage with and engage in that translation with. I grew up in the north end of Winnipeg, where there was a very large Filipino community because bringing in Filipino garment workers was one of the first labor migration programs in Canada. And so there was a large Filipino community that I grew up with that I felt part of. And it wasn't until Uh, I was older and we moved into a a middle-class neighborhood where all of a sudden there was me and one other Filipina girl. And so we, you know, as with Jen, 
we became best friends because there were only two of us. <laughs> and in high school, all of my close friends were other Asian women. And we're still close friends now. And we talk about how it was so important for us to actually have more than one other person mm-hmm. like us in the class. So I grew up with a, a very conscious, active sense of myself as uh, part of a diaspora. And with my children, it's been different because, you know, Winnipeg for its size is actually a remarkably diverse community with so many different languages and so many different uh, ethnicities. And so coming to Toronto was like Winnipeg um, on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. A similar level of diversity, but I found that people were much more quick to try and categorize you. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying that growing up in Winnipeg was easy. I certainly, from the first day I went to school, faced all those really toxic racist encounters of kids, you know, doing the slanty eye thing at me and calling me every racial slur in the book and, you know, on and on. And then, you know, when I uh, started to go out into the legal profession, being asked by people whether I was going to take advantage of employment equity opportunities and how unfair that was. But it's different with my kids. There's a, like I said, there's, there's not that pressure to assimilate. Instead, there's a real pride in knowing your heritage, living your heritage, being yeah. your authentic self. And I love that. It leads to a lot more sophistication in understanding the politics around race, the economics around race, the ways in which people have different kinds of privilege, not just around race, but around class, around gender, around uh, sexual identity, gender expression, all of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good thing. That understanding of privilege, not just, you know, visible difference, like the visible minority term is something that I loathe and that should be struck from our vocabulary. Can I just pick up on one thing that you said, Faye? I, I think that the word assimilation I think is interesting, particularly in the context of of Asian women or or Asian immigrants to Canada, because I have noticed a lot of my friends who are Asian are the children of immigrants, uh, as I am. And I talked to my mother about doing this podcast. And she said, why? Why? (laughs) I got everywhere. I, I, I got where I am through my hard work. And I didn't ever ask for any favors. And then she launched into a series of horrible stories of all the racism she's faced in her life and how she made it through it. But she didn't identify it as racism. It was just, look how tough I am. Look what I've gotten. And I think that that was what really, that really stuck with me as the child of an immigrant, that that I was lucky, I was going to make it through my own hard work. Nobody was going to hand me anything. And it's that resilience that I really admire. That's a, that's a part of my culture and part of my Filipina culture. And I mean, Filipina, Filipino women are some of the strongest people I know. And I am so proud of being part of that. But it also means there's a, there was like a, you know, don't ask for any favors. You are you, you're going to, you can do whatever you put your mind to, you work hard. Um, You know, there was a lot of pressure to go to U.S. schools. (laughs) There was, there's like a, there's a, you know, a particular 
I hate the word tiger mum. Personally, it's not something I, I enjoy too much because it's seen in a different way from outside of the community, I think. Not, not so much how you might mean it to, to identify yourself. <laughs> but I think it's so interesting, the assimilation concept, that uh, I think that's true for me, that I felt like because I can, I should assimilate and not ask for any favors because of my background and was very aware of my privilege. And I am hopeful for my kids who are fairly white presenting kids. Uh, their dad is, is white. I, I'm really unsure how they're going to identify, but I'm really hopeful for them that if we give them the right tools, that they're going to identify however they choose to. And my only the only downside is that I'm far away from my mother and I'm not as... I have a lot of Asian friends that we hang out with, but I don't have a lot of Filipino friends that I hang out with here. They're all that connection is very much in Vancouver where my family is. So I want them to have more connection and it's hard for me to figure out how to do that, but I just want to be able to facilitate however they choose to identify. Can I just pick up on the assimilation thing for a minute? Sorry, we're (laughs) taking over the the narrative here, but I think there's two things that are structurally important about that. One is that in our present discourse, we overlook the fact that it was illegal for brown and black people to immigrate to Canada without special dispensation until the 60s. And so when my parents were coming into the country, they were among the very first wave of non-white immigrants who came in in the 60s. They came here like just before I was born. And so that puts a kind of premium on how are you acting? Will you be the model minority who doesn't rock the boat, right? Right. You've been given the special privilege of coming to Canada, even though you were leaving a place where there were segregation laws, right? But there are also people who grew into their adulthood in communities where they were the majority population. And so they didn't identify as lesser than. They didn't have that structural cult. Well, I mean, you know, that's not entirely true. The, uh, the Philippines was so thoroughly colonized by uh, the Americans, yeah. that there was that America is the promised land. But they still grew up where at a personal level, they identified themselves as their culture. Mm-hmm. And so wouldn't, I think, had a different comfort with being that without having to assert it. Mm-hmm. So how have you lived experiences growing up in Winnipeg and then BC shaped your decision to go into law school or played a role in your legal career? For me, there's a complete continuity between my life experience and my practice in law. I went into law specifically to work with marginalized workers to work with migrant workers. And that's what I do. So a lot of my work for the last 30 years has been with with Filipino migrant workers and other racialized groups of, of migrant workers. And that link between race, migration, and economic security and gender has always been 
the the focus of the work that I do, as well as looking at those spaces in between, right? The ways in which the law tries to create these binaries, but doesn't acknowledge that we actually mostly live in the spaces in between, and that's where the interesting stuff happens. That's a really nice way to put it. I, I, it's a bit more complicated for me. So I'm an environmental lawyer, which, you know, has to do with my background. I grew up in an organic farm in southern BC and, and have always been drawn to the intersections between the environment and our health. And that's been a theme throughout my career. The way that my identity has shaped my legal career, it certainly has it's a little bit more complicated than phase because I think that there's been, there's always been a part of me that doesn't wants to buck trends. You know, there's, and I get this from my mother. <laughs> if, if I'm not expected to be able to do it or to do it, then I'm going to do it and I'm not going to stop. And so I think part of the reason why I'm actually still in private practice is, is a little bit of, you know, I've, I've got two young kids. I'm still in private practice. I'm in my early forties and I'm going to just keep doing it. I'm going to do it. You're not going to, I'm not going to get pushed out. So I think there's a there's a little bit of resilience that I get there and and some some strength and and then as I've gone through my career some of my mentors Faye <laughs> whether she knows it or not I've looked up to as a mentor in my career Greg Abogado is a Filipino lawyer who I worked with for a time and he really took me under his wing and I and I think I've gotten a lot I mean it's really what led me to finally join FACL was that I, I thought about my network and the people that supported me and my my Asian colleagues, my, and not even people who I worked with, but the, the people all through my career really helped me along. I've always focused on mentorship and I think it's really important. I, I think we're going to talk a little bit about what we can do in firms to increase diversity, but if I'm not there, then the articling student who, the Asian articling student is going to go to court and like me for the first 10 years of her career is likely going to go to court with white men for the first 10 years of her career. And it's really difficult to understand how you can be an effective lawyer if all the ways that you can be and all of your strengths aren't reflected in the people who you're going to court with or aren't reflected in the people who are leading meetings when you're sitting there. And so I, I think that it's kind of forced me to remain present. And especially as I get older, I work a lot with Indigenous clients. And what I found interesting, particularly as I'm working more up north, is that I do not identify as Indigenous. I do not. Um, and I make it very clear early that I am not because to my Indigenous clients, very often they just make the assumption. But what I found really interesting is that there's a, when I do say that I'm multiracial or that I'm half Filipino or however I put it on that given day, there's usually a, a sense of, yeah, okay, yeah, you get it. There's a, there's a you know, you have a, the colonial background and there's cultural similarities. And so it's, it's, it's made me more comfortable with, you know, working with Indigenous clients. And there's, it's been a great way to kind of find similarities as well with, with clients. And so I think I don't have as direct a connection as Faye, but throughout my career, it's been there. It's been who I, who I mentor, who mentors me, and really is a big reason why I'm still, still in private practice. That role of mentorship, I think, can't be overstated. When I was called to the bar, I could like literally name the Filipino lawyers in the province because I think you could count us on one hand. When you look through the statistics 
on race and who was called in what year, even though they're anonymous, you can actually identify me because there's like one of me. Um, those are still true whenever I do those surveys. There's no anonymity on any of those surveys. <laughs> but, you know, that whole thing of being trained in a, a culture that is completely alien is really significant. It means that throughout my career, I've had to, again, learn a different culture and uh, a different value system. Growing up in an Asian culture, the priority is looking after the whole, right? The yeah. collective. You don't promote yourself as, you know, the individual. You're going to get, like, reminded of everybody who is who has helped you get to where you are. And so when I was working in, in teams as an associate and even as a partner, that work of relationship building, relationship nurturing, communication, making sure everyone was on the same page, was looked at as submissive, as lacking initiative, as lacking ambition, when it was really about making the group stronger. And so I had to learn that that's actually devalued and you're penalized for that in law. So I had to learn that individualist mentality of, I don't know, how to identify your achievements in terms that an individualist Western culture recognizes. But without that, a lot of work, a lot of that emotional intelligence that it takes to make a firm run well was devalued, was overlooked. And at the same time, that really direct mentorship is important. I was, before I started my own firm 10 years ago, I was a partner in another firm and spent a decade doing student and associate recruitment. And at a National Labor Lawyers Conference last year, I, for the first time, spoke on a panel where three of the four people were Filipina. And they were women who I had hired and mentored. And, you know, so we talked about that on the panel. It was just such a moment. And I, I you know, I called out and said, okay, Filipino lawyers up to the front were doing a caucus photo at the end, and which was considered really controversial, offensive even. Um, but, you know, people did come and we yeah. took a photo and all but one of the people in that group were people who I had hired. So wow. if I had not been there, yeah. would there be those people? I was the first. And it's really important to recognize that without representation, without opening the door to recognize the skills and talents of different communities, the world doesn't change. So I'm very conscious of that. And I am very consciously mentoring, supporting, making referrals to racialized lawyers coming up because I'm in a position to do that now. And that's my responsibility to make us all stronger.
Right. Faye, can I, I, I don't know, a Andrea and Michelle, whether I not, I can pull you in here, but um, I think what's, what's interesting is you're talking about how um, some of your strengths from your background, from your culture, you know, really allowed you to build teams. I, I you know, I find that as well. I, I think that what I've experienced most of my career, because of the way I look and the way that people in Toronto in particular identify me, the time I have experienced direct racism, but uh, not as often as just an amplification of being a woman. And because of the way that I think the culture has kind of, frankly, sexualized Asian women and see them as submissive, and I'm, you know, seeing some nodding of heads, like this is, <laughs> this is, you know, I, I look at me and I see a 40-year-old woman, but, you know, I've been before many judges who still treat me like I'm a 24-year-old assistant um, and still ask me uh, what my role is. I can't believe that it's still happening now, but still, still happening me, in my 50s. Yeah, tell me that they're, you know, I, I strong and I win a point and it's like, well, don't want to get you in trouble with your partner. I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> not, not assuming that I am myself a partner. And, and I'm asking Andrea and Michelle too. I, I think the struggle I've had is that is that it's very difficult for people who I work with to see me both as somebody who's good at team building and also somebody who's tough enough to be the tough lawyer in court. And I've seen this with my, with my Asian friends. Um, there's an assumption that if within the office you are thoughtful and you listen and you're not always talking over people, that that means that, okay, you're good here but you're not going to be good enough for court or you're not going to be good enough to go out there and be in front of the client because you know, you're good at this and they put you in a box. And as Faye and I both know, there's generally nothing submissive about Filipino women <laughs> in my experience anyway. And so I, I find it really difficult and I don't know how to, I don't know if Andrea and Michelle, you've also experienced this where it's just a struggle to be who you are. And Faye was saying that too, that she's, that she's had to learn how to be more individualistic. But it's just, it's the way that people see us and how they, they make all these assumptions that if we're good at, anyway, do, do you have any thoughts about that? I'm sure you've experienced it too. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I am also in private practice and uh, we're a fairly small firm, you know, practicing in a very specialized area. I have to say, I probably felt those sentiments that you're talking about more so when I was just starting out. I was actually, you know, asked by one of the masters as the assistant to bring up some papers to him in the middle of a trial. And I was thinking at the time I had just been called, I was like, in my mind thinking, is this the future of <laughs> where my place in the courtroom is going to be? What's interesting about our firm is that you know, a lot of us are actually on the younger side. And so when you, when you look at our firm, we're all sort of in like our age range, you know, and, and by our, I mean, sort of like the thirties to top end fifties. And I actually think that that environment of being one, a smaller firm and two sort of on the younger side, it actually does change the way the practice is going. So for example, we always work in teams we are quite collaborative with the way we work. And I think, you know, in the past, even at the firm, you were sort of given a task and you would just go and do it on your own. And there was a lot of, as, as you're saying, Jennifer, you know, outside of the courtroom, perhaps this is okay, but you need to be louder and quicker 
and meaner in the courtroom. But I actually find that the way we're practicing now, and I don't know if it's our area of law or the way law is progressing generally, I feel like there's a lot more collaboration and even to some extent, I'm going to say some cooperation with other counsel so that it's not always a battle of the minds in court. And there's a lot of of stuff that happens sort of in in teams and collaboratively to try and help clients, at least in our field, to to settle matters if possible, you know, before it gets to that really litigious stage. But, you know, that's sort of my own experience at my firm. And I have felt the the change in approach to work. Um, And I, and I just, sometimes I wonder whether or not it's because it's, we are a small firm, We've all kind of grown up with each other and we're all in and around that age range of 30 to, you know, top end sort of 50-ish and we're all kind of open-minded to change. So I think I'm probably one of the youngest amongst us four. And so when I first started articling at a Bay Street law firm, my class was very diverse in terms of gender and ethnicity. And I mean, I left private practice last year. So and I stayed at the law firm for five, six years. So reaching to the year where I was contemplating partnership, I learned a lot. So when I first started, I think what I deemed as in order to get hired back, I need you to put my head down and work really, really hard. And that was what I was taught, you know, from my family. I worked really hard, put my head down, be studious. But then what I realized in order to succeed on Bay Street was you needed to be more individualistic in the sense that you needed to learn how to promote yourself and be more vocal about your opinions. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like there is a stereotype that is put on Asian women that in order to succeed on Bay Street, you had to be more vocal. You cannot be submissive. You had to promote and bring in business. And as a result, you had to, if you couldn't fit into that mold, you will not make partner. Mm -hmm. And I wonder sometimes if people leave and if I hate using this term, but uh, visible minorities, which I don't like that term, racialized women, racialized women leave because they couldn't fit into that mold. And they thought that, oh my gosh, once I become partner, like, how am I going to bring in business? Because I didn't go to that private school. I didn't have those connections. I can't really fit into that mold, but I've done it for this long. So those are some of my thoughts. And, and I actually agree with something that Jennifer had said earlier. I mean, the the being, you know, Jennifer as a, as a partner at a at a big Bay Street firm, you know, you are visible to the students and the associates coming up. And I think that that is actually something that is quite key: the mentorship and the and the visibility, because you know, if if every generation of student coming up doesn't see themselves reflected in these leadership roles, I think that it's going to, there, there will be, you know, a mass exodus at that four or five year mark because they simply, you know, don't have anyone to talk to who is a partner or who sits in, in some of those leadership roles. 
And and can I say, so Michelle, I think that's really interesting what you said and, and about the, the age and the stage that you, the left private practice, because I will say having stayed in private practice, that regardless if you, whatever your background is, people generally succeed in advance in firms because people are mentoring them. At a big firm, there aren't even many young white men who went to private schools who can build the kind of business that you need to be an equity partner at a big firm without people ahead of them identifying them as the successor to their practice. It's a myth that somehow the people who make it all the way up, and I'm sure that there are some people who do, but generally people don't make partner at seven, eight years out and then equity partner because they've built their own book of business. And I think that that's something that is important to verbalize and to say to people. The problem is, is that sometimes if you are an Asian woman, people tell you that you have to do that and that you have to do it on your own and it feels impossible. But the reality is, is that if you really dig into it, that's not how people succeed. Um, but one of the things is, is how we talk about it. And part of it is that because we do talk about teamwork and any of my successes are my team successes, the difference is, is that you'll have uh, somebody else who may be, maybe a white man will assume that the success is his, even if, even if a lot of it was handed to him, he will focus on his hard work on keeping and developing that client relationship Whereas I will focus on the fact that somebody gave that to me and I still do it. And so I, you know, I will say that I think, I think it's important to verbalize and to say, and I can see Faye nodding her head is that it's never all on you. And I think it's really important as, as, as people advance for, for the senior people and for the people coming up to, to verbalize that because also the senior people think that they did it all on their own often when they, and they don't recognize all the stuff that was handed to them. So thank you for telling us about that, because that's really interesting to hear that perspective. I think the other thing that your comments raised for me, Michelle, about having to learn how to become individual, individualistic and promote yourself, is that the rules of the game continue to change. Every time you meet that landmark, oh, all of a sudden the rules are different. So I was talking about how I had to learn that all those cultural values of promoting the collective as a whole, showing deference to your elders, not submissiveness, but respect to your elders. I had to learn how to shift those priorities to be able to highlight the things that I had achieved. And I got good at that. I developed a public profile. I developed a a high profile in the media. And then that was turned against me as being being self-promoting and taking too much of the spotlight. So it's like, well, you know, you told me what to do and I've done it. And... Oh, sorry. There's no words there, right? There's no words. (laughs) it's... You know, setting up my own firm for me was about, which I did 10 years ago in my early 40s, 11 years ago, I guess. I needed to do that to be able to work in a way that was most authentic to myself, that allowed me to work the way that is natural for me to build the relationships that are collaborative, horizontal, supportive, and are 
deeply informed by intersectional analysis and lived reality. So, you know, we don't have to fit the mold that's out there. And I reached a point where I realized it's not my job to change what other people are doing. They want to do that. That's their thing. That's fine. I have a different vision of what it means to be a lawyer, of how to work with community, of how to make law accessible, how to understand that law isn't just litigation, that that's a tiny portion of what the law is and the ways in which you build security in communities. And so I had to create that model. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that's very deeply informed by my culture, informed by the values of, of my culture and the ways of working that are alien to a Western model of how to do law. So I have felt more whole and more authentic in being able to create the environment to do that my way. You know, these topics have been so fascinating to delve into. Really, thank you, Jen and Faye, for joining us today for part one of our podcast on identity and race and sharing your insights and experiences with us. The conversation has been so interesting that we're really looking forward to part two next week. To our listeners, if you have any questions or thoughts you'd like to share with us on what you've heard so far, please reach out to us through our Faculty Ontario website. And please also look out for our next episode with Jen and Faye to be continued. Thank you for listening. We invite you to check out our website at on.facl.ca and subscribe to Fackle's newsletters and podcasts. If you have any questions, please contact us through our website. We look forward to having you join us again.